Uh, this is Enrique Morones of Gente Unida, and very importantly, of Buen Hombre and Magnificent Mujer. As many of you know, we have weekly podcasts, and we want to highlight Buen Hombres and Magnificent Mujeres, Mujeres, about who they are, what they do, and how they can let you know what is taking place, how they can hopefully inspire you as they have inspired me to make this a better world and a better place. And today we have an incredible Magnificent Mujer, somebody that I've known for several years. She does incredible work as does her organization. She's an attorney. She's originally from the East Coast of the United States, but now for the last several years, she has lived in Tijuana, Mexico. And her name is Nicole Ramos of Al Otro Lado. Nicole, how are you? Thank you for all your work and how are you doing? Oh, I, I'm doing okay. I'm doing a lot better than most um, during a time that's pretty difficult for all of us. It's very challenging. It's a very challenging time on all fronts, on the health front, on the administration, actually in both countries, United States and Mexico, on the realities on the ground, and on these terrible um, injustices that are taking place, and the fact that the most needy are often completely forgotten, neglected, and not helped. And if it wasn't for people like you, they would be receiving no help at all. So we want to thank you for joining us today, because uh, I know you're going to be telling us a little bit about the work of Al Otro Lado, how people can get involved, how people can support. And then we're also going to be doing uh, a segment in Spanish, so you could talk directly to some of the Spanish-speaking migrants that need help and support. So we want to thank you, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit now about Nicole Ramos al otro lado and how you can get involved. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Nicole Ramos. I am the director of Al Otro Lado's Border Rights Project. Al Otro Lado is a binational legal services organization. We are three female co-directors, which we like to say shows that women can rule the world and women can start revolutions. Um, and we have offices in Los Angeles. That's our, our home office, an office in San Diego, and then an office in Tijuana. Our Los Angeles office works with uh, people who are detained at the Adelanto Detention Facility. They also work with asylum seekers that are extremely medically compromised um, and who are accessing our public health system in Los Angeles to qualify for relief. Uh, our San Diego office represents detained immigrants in the Otay Mesa Detention Facility. And then our Tijuana office has a legal orientation know your rights program in Tijuana, Mexico, where we educate asylum seekers about the system that they're about to engage, what their rights are in that system, and how state actors may seek to violate those rights, and what kinds of things that they can do to protect themselves and their families. We also work more intensively with asylum seekers that have been returned to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico policy, also known as MPP. And, and with those asylum seekers, we help them complete their asylum applications. We help them to do preparation for their hearing testimony. We translate all of their evidence and help them put it together into exhibit uh, packets for, for the court. And then in certain cases where the person is particularly vulnerable in Mexico and under DHS's own guidelines should not be in the program, we work with um, different agencies and with authorities to try and get that person into the United States and before immigration court in some other context away from the border, usually where they have friends or family that are willing to take them in. Well, that's a lot of work. And, uh, that's the, well, actually, I'm actually not done. That's the direct work that we do with clients, but out of the lado, what we also do is we engage in human rights uh, observing at the port of entry in Tijuana, Mexico. So we're often one of the first to spot trends in how officials are violating the rights of asylum seekers and accessing the port of entry and the asylum process. And all of this work funnels into our impact litigation projects. Currently, we have seven class action lawsuits against the federal government 
addressing the rights of detained immigrants, as well as asylum seekers who are trying to access the process through the southern border. That's incredible, the, uh, the amount of work that you do. And uh, how big is your team? I know you mentioned there's two other women, but do you, ha do you have uh, like volunteers and interns as well? Yeah, so we're three female co-directors, and then we have a staff <clears throat> of approximately 35 people across our three offices. And then we wouldn't be able to do all that we're able to do, particularly um, with working with so many people in Tijuana, if it weren't for the thousands of volunteers that we have that come to Tijuana to work on the ground or volunteer and help us out remotely. In the last year and a half, we have worked with over 3,000 different volunteers and nothing would be possible without their help. Yeah, the volunteers are always so important. And I remember the first time I met you was several years ago, maybe, I don't know, three or four years ago, and uh, I think. And we were at the border on either side of the wall there at Friendship Park. And I had heard so much about you and all the work that you were doing, but I had never seen you. And when I saw you, I thought, that's Nicole Ramos? Because the way that I had heard about you, you were a bigger-than-life person. So I thought you would be you know, bigger than life. I don't know. I was just imagining another person. And when I saw you, I go, oh, uh, I can't believe that, that that person is the one that's doing all this incredible work, almost like a superwoman. And I was really impressed. And um, you were talking to a migrant. I think it was maybe a migrant on the San Diego side and you were on the Tijuana side and they were describing their situation or, or something along those lines. So it's been, um, it's been quite a, uh, the last several years with all of these issues exploding even before the virus. And now you have the virus on top of that, which makes it uh, just absolutely uh, insane. And one of the things that's really insane is uh, closing down the border to uh, asylum seekers. So what's going on now? Can people still seek asylum? Can a person jump over the wall? I know they're not supposed to, but I know they do sometimes, and say, I want asylum, or, or what's going on? When they clo they're closing down the border, and people are trying to do it the right way, and turn themselves in, what, what's happening? Um, well, anyone who tries to turn themselves in is gonna be turned away, and on the Mexico side, they are not even operating the wait list. They're not adding new people to the wait list. So there's no ability to access the process the legal way, quote unquote. And people who try to enter the U.S. to seek asylum um, by entering without inspection and by that, you know, going over the wall or, you know, going through the hills, those people are going to be subject to rapid expulsion. Um, and when I say rapid, I mean less than 24 hours, including people who are unaccompanied minors who are entitled to even more legal protections than the average immigrant who's attempting to engage the asylum process. So, I mean, let's just sit with that for a minute. We're returning, rapidly expelling children that have fled thousands of miles away, returning them to the countries from which they fled. Um, so it's, the consequences are really dire. Um, when we talk with immigrants, it is our recommendation to them that they do their best to shelter in place and do not attempt to seek entry to the United States right now. Because apart from being subject to rapid expulsion, we have no idea what the rate of transmission of COVID-19 is inside the detention facilities. We know that it's spreading rapidly based upon the phone calls that we get from immigrants detained in the detention facilities, but we have no idea other than that what's being provided in terms of to soap and water and protective gear or what's happening to people who are mysteriously falling ill and then into seclusion, you know, what, what is happening to these people. So it's our position that's just not safe for a number of reasons for people to attempt to seek asylum at us right now. And one of the things even before this, this virus, and I remember uh, last year and well, the last couple of years, I personally witnessed, whether it was on news reports or talking to people, people that had jumped over the wall and had gone up to Border Patrol agents to turn themselves in. And I saw a few of them while I was on the Tijuana side and I saw a group that had done that on the US side. Um, isn't it international law that, and I know that, well, it, well uh, the question is, isn't it international law that they're supposed to be able to, when they seek assignment, uh, asylum, 
they would go someplace or on the spot or whatever the case is. But, but to, to talk to people that are qualified to see if they qualify for some sort of a, an asylum hearing, not the actual long process hearing, but just to see if they have a valid claim. Isn't that the law? Because what would happen, which I could not believe, and I and many others complained a lot about this, was they would walk the people back sometimes and have them jump back over the wall to Mexico. And I thought, That's, that, that, that is just not right. Well, turning people back to a territory where they fear persecution based upon their race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or because they belong to some group in society that's singled out for disfavored treatment, that would violate the provisions of an international law known as non refoulement. And so you are correct to be outraged, turning people away without any sort of process or evaluation as to what you're turning them back to does violate our tenets of international law. The problem is, is that this administration would like to undo the needs of us adhering to all of the international laws that protect the rights of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and what they're going to do with COVID-19 and what they're doing right now is using this as an excuse to accomplish what it wants to accomplish anyway, which is the exclusion of all asylum seekers. And, and, and is there anything that can be done? So this is where maybe you, your, your organization, Al Otro Lado, or on the other side, uh, isn't the, is that one of the things that you and other groups might do to say, um, wait a minute, this is the international law, this person has a valid claim, but are they really paying any type of an attention or is that why you're doing the lawsuits? We are not suing about this particular issue. We are suing about the, the wait list in Tijuana. We're suing with other organizations about the Remain in Mexico policy. We're also suing with other organizations about the asylum ban, which prevents a certain asylum seekers from even being eligible for asylum in the first place. Um, we are not suing about this particular policy, but other organizations that um, are on the border or larger impact organizations, they are suing about conditions and rapid expulsions. Um, and we can only expect that more litigation, the more that we find out about how people are being treated in the system and how their, the violation of their rights violates not only international law, but more importantly, US federal law for the purposes of our courts. Um, and so we anticipate there's gonna be even more litigation down the road. Yes, and then there's all these uh, protests that many of, many of us have been involved with and that continue to escalate because of the uh, craziness of what's happening. And when you hear uh, through you know, phone calls and, and, and the media and so forth, uh, and other organizations, the pleas from the people that are in the detention facilities, it is just unbelievable. It is unbelievable when they're telling that they're not being separated, that everybody's bunched together, that they're not giving them protection, that they got to sign certain documents in order to get a mask. Uh, it is so inhumane that it is literally unbelievable. And it's a situation where there's already, and historically, there's already been such a unequal treatment of people of different communities, different races, different sexual preference. So you have all that on top of this situation, and it's like the worst of the worst that could possibly be happening. And recently, I heard of a group, I'm sure you did too, of people from Guatemala that were being sent back through to Guatemala, and it ended up that many of them had the, the COVID-19 and had the virus, and um, and I don't think countries like uh, Guatemala, you know, which don't have the resources that a country like the United States or even Mexico has, um, is ready to receive these people. So it's almost like, uh, you know, walking them into a situation where, you know, not only are they going to be suffering or maybe even dying, but it's going to be spreading because of the actions of the U.S. government. It, it is absolutely insane. And, and, and it really is difficult to believe. One of the things that I've always wondered is, when I met you a few years ago, what brought you to do this type of work to begin with? To become an attorney and so forth, you're originally from, from back east. What was your calling? What, what, why did you decide to become an attorney? And was it always aimed towards uh, migrants? 
I had always wanted to be an attorney. Um, but before becoming an attorney, I spent several years working as a social worker in Philadelphia. And I went to law school in Philadelphia. And following law school, I took a job at the Federal Public Defender's Office in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, part of the reason why I took that job is because I would have the opportunity to work, do some appellate work for men and women that were convicted of capital murder and sentenced to the death penalty um, in Alabama prisons and challenging those convictions, but most often the death sentence itself um, as excessive. In cases where people, while they may have had an appointed attorney, might as well have not had any attorney at all. Um, and we're looking at trial transcripts that are rife with errors, um, rife with constitutional violations, and just looking at that um, and figuring out ways to undo that death sentence, um, as well as representing people who have been charged of, with a variety of federal crimes that, and they didn't have money for their own uh, private defender. And among the people that I represented uh, was a fair amount of people that had been charged with illegally re-entering the United States, so immigrants. And of those people that have been charged with illegally re-entering the U.S., I found that folks fell into usually one of three categories. One, you know, people were very Americanized, largely Mexican, um, but very Americanized, spent most of their lives in the U.S., went to U.S. schools, had you know, kids that were U.S. citizens. Um, and they, for them, were just crossing the border because they were coming home. The U.S. was the, their home. Then there were other people um, who we would call asylum seekers that kept crossing the border because they didn't either didn't know about the process to seek protection or they tried to access that process and had been shut out. Um, but they knew that they couldn't stay at home because staying at home um, could mean a death sentence. And then, you know, there were folks that traditionally people would say, oh, they're economic migrants. They're coming here for a better opportunity because they're too poor. There's no work. Um, what we forget though, and why I don't like the term economic migrants is that, um, Many people, for example, if you look at the case of Guatemala, they're coming uh, for economic reasons. Many of them are indigenous or from rural communities that were highly impacted by the 36-year civil war in Guatemala, which our government through the School of the Americas and the CIA helped to start and foment and continue. And so our U.S. foreign policy and our tax dollars have played a significant role in destabilizing economies throughout Latin America and making them unsafe places where people can't survive um, to, on traditional means with their families. And so that looking at that is not necessarily an economic migrant, but a victim of, of state-structured violence. Um, and so with that in mind, people just overarching just kept coming but didn't have information about how the system worked or what the consequences of re-entering uh, were in terms of prison. And after six years in Montgomery, I felt like it was time for me to move on and new experience. I didn't want to stay in the South my whole life. And so I came to Tijuana and um, in 2014, and I began volunteering at Casa Migrante, which is, um, one of the oldest shelters, if not the oldest shelter in Tijuana for migrants. Um, and I began working with folks who were thinking about re-entering, have been deported, talking with them about what those consequences would look like. And then asylum seekers heard, oh, you know, that there was an attorney from the U.S. that, you know, they could come and talk about what their case, what was going on. Um, and in talking with asylum seekers and, and getting up to speed on asylum law, because it wasn't my initial area of practice, I had done asylum clinical work in law school, but it had been several years before and I'd been out of practice for a long time. So I had to really get up to speed. But other than talking to me about their individual cases, what was really consistent was that people were telling me that they were trying to present themselves legally at the port of entry to US Customs and Border Protection officers, uh, but that they were being turned away. And um, for me, that was very strange, having worked with a lot of different kinds of federal law enforcement and being um, exposed to a certain level of professionalism. Um, it was just, 
unfathomable that they could so blatantly violate the law. And so I went one day in November, no, it was December of 2015 with a family from El Salvador to help them present themselves. And I saw firsthand exactly what they were talking about. And it wasn't until I intervened, identified myself as an attorney, you know, and repeated what, what my client had just repeated, but in a more legal authoritative way, were they allowed to be processed. And from there, I started getting a lot of requests from asylum seekers to accompany them to the port of entry. And every time we would experience some kind of pushback by CBP officers. Um, and so that's kind of how this work for me organically started. But during this time, I also met my co-directors, Nora Phillips and Erica Pinheiro. And Nora had started Al Otro Lado in 2011 with another woman um, who now works for the ACLU, Esmeralda Flores. And they initially started it as an all-volunteer-run model. And Nora had been coming down since then to Tijuana and doing these large-scale legal clinics at Casa Migrante, which included asylum seekers, but was also largely for deportees. And at that time, Erica was working at a large nonprofit um, called Caresen in Los Angeles, where she was a supervising attorney um, and also on the board of directors for Al Otro Lado, so helping uh, Nora to really structure those large-scale legal clinics and so I met them and you know I was collecting all this data from my accompaniment of asylum seekers um, and we kind of all became friends and then Trump was elected and what I was seeing down here just started getting worse and worse and Nora and Erica decided um, that this volunteer model was no longer just tenable and that we needed to just kind of all put our forces into building up this organization and, and really taking on the US government. Um, we decided we were gonna sue the government before we had any budget, um, before we were even paying ourselves or had staff, um, but we knew that we had all of these stories from the different asylum seekers that had told us they had been turned away and there was nothing else that we could do but find someone to take this case to court for us um, because we knew we just couldn't look away. And so that's kind of the condensed version of, of how we got here. Well, it's quite a story and, and uh, two places that are dear to my heart that you mentioned as far as your education and, and uh, your background, Philadelphia and uh, Montgomery. I lecture all over the, um, the country and, 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 and in other countries, but I've been to all 50 states and all that kind of stuff. But outside of California, like when I'm giving presentations at, in California, like Mount St. Mary's College not too long ago up in Los Angeles, um, the second state I go to more than others besides California is actually Pennsylvania. I'm invited to go to Pennsylvania on a regular basis. I was just there a couple of months ago talking about the realities as a border witness, the realities on the border and what's happening today and how you can get involved, et cetera. And the other place is, that's the, that's the place I, re I visit regularly. But the other place, which is very key to me, is Montgomery, Alabama. Because one of the organizations that I've worked with for a long, long time is as a um, kind of a partner, is the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I was actually there giving a presentation one time. And I remember during my, pres I was there in, in Montgomery giving a presentation. And during my presentation, I said something like, well, after this, I'm gonna go visit an organization that I know you're all familiar with, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, et cetera, et cetera. And after I was done, and you know how it is, you've given presentations afterwards, people come up to you and wanna to talk to you. Well, these two people came up to me and they said, oh yeah, so who are you gonna go see over there at the Southern Poverty Law Center? So I was, as I was going through that, they said, do they know you're coming? And I said, no, but they know who I am. So I, you know, I'm just gonna stop by. And they said, you can't just stop by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And uh, it was really funny because I was talking to two of the principals and they said, oh, we'll welcome you. But when I went there, it has more security than the White House. It is unbelievable how much security they have there because of all the threats that they've received for the incredible work that the Southern Poverty Law Center does in uh, defending the rights of, of people of various communities. While you were in Montgomery, did you work, or even after, did you work at all with the Southern Poverty Law Center? I didn't work with SPLC when I was at the Federal Defender's Office. However, now, um, Al Otro Lado works with SPLC a lot, actually, in 
I would say four, I'm trying to think four of our class action lawsuits, SPLC is representing us. And then we ha also have another lawsuit that's a FOIA litigation where SPLC and Ad Otro Lado, we are co-plaintiffs uh, in that lawsuit. Yeah, they, they do incredible work as, as you do. And, and then the things that have changed so much since you went from uh, the, you know, the other parts of the country to, to Tijuana, our encounter, the meeting at the wall, well, we can't even do that anymore because now Friendship Park is closed and, and so on and so forth. And then you have a different administration in Washington. And it's just such a, a challenging situation. And one of the things that breaks most of our hearts is when you see these children that have died in custody. That's another thing that, that didn't used to happen before. Apart from the, you know, the, the kids being separated from their parents and kids being in cages and, and, and tear gassing through the wall and, and so many things that are just horrific, having children die in custody is, just doesn't have words. I, you know, I've always said a society is judged on how we treat our children. And when you hear these stories uh, from the people, Central America, Mexico, and so forth, regardless of where they're from, but in the case of these six children that were the, were the, the six that were, um, you know, died relatively close to each other in time, they were all so horrific and they were all avoidable. And I remember talking about lecturing, you know, sometimes some people will say, well, why did they come to begin with? It's their fault. And I was in Los Angeles speaking at a synagogue and I remember I mentioned the children that are, that are coming up because somebody asked, why would the, the parents allow their, their children to be coming up with uh, somebody they don't even know. And I said, well, here I am in a synagogue, and it reminds me of the story of Moses. When Moses' mother put him in a basket, it was to, to, to hopefully have him survive, because if she put him in that river, anything could have happened. But that was the, her choice in order for him to survive was to put him in that basket. So I told the rabbi I was speaking with, I go, it's the same story. These children are, in order to survive, are being, you know, they're not really unaccompanied, but they're accompanied by strangers and in order to survive. So these six children, because all, all those, in, in those cases, some of them actually were with a relative. That is just, um, it's just so, so sad. Children dying in custody. Uh, and I know that you weren't involved in this case, but I, I read recently about a, a woman that gave birth inside one of the facilities, the immigration uh, facilities holding on to a trash can. You hear of people that, uh, you know, you hear these different versions and, uh, and I go, well, I know who I'm going to believe because I've worked with this community for such a long time, the migrant community. They're scared. They've been treated so unfairly in their home country and now where they're at now. So uh, it, it is just heartbreaking. I don't know how you could, you and, and the people that you're working with could endure these stories because, um, you know, what you're doing is God's work you know, listening to them, trying to help them, and um, giving them some sort of justice. It is just something that, uh, that I can't, uh, I don't know, it's just, just very, very emotional. Now, it's one of the things that we wanted to know also is you, you mentioned something about a humanitarian fund, the humanitarian fund. So as far as your work with Al Otro Lado, a nonprofit, how can people that can't go, maybe they can't, they don't have a passport, they can't go to Tijuana, and these issues, by the way, are not uh, only happening in Tijuana, as, as you well know, uh, but how can help people specifically help al otro lado, you know, that are listening to the story, some of the stories that you shared with us or that I've shared, and they want to help al otro lado. How can they make uh, financial contributions or, be, or, or maybe want to be a volunteer? Maybe they're a young attorney or, or maybe they're looking for an internship. How can they get involved and what, what is this humanitarian so people who are looking to volunteer, um, whether remotely and then in person, once we reopen our office, hopefully later this summer, they can fill out our volunteer application, which is at alotrolado.org, A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O.org. And they would want to complete our application for our border rights project, which is our Tijuana-based project. And as I mentioned, we do have a lot of remote opportunities right now because our work has moved like many other workplaces remotely. And so people are still migrating, people are still needing help. Um, and so we are aiming to provide that to folks uh, remotely. 
people who are interested in donating to Al Otro Lado can also go to our website, um, hit click the donate button, and it will take you to a page where you can look and see what our different programs are that you would like to donate to. Um, some of our programs that are always in need of funds are obviously our Border Rights Project in Tijuana. We also have a bond fund, which we use to pay the bonds of people who are detained at Otay Mesa Detention Facility and Adelanto that Al Otro Lado represents. Um, many of the people that were able to get out on bond because our attorneys have, have won their freedom are simply not able to pay for their freedom themselves. And so we wanna never let money be the barrier to freedom. Also, you can find in that drop-down menu a humanitarian fund that we started to help meet the needs of migrants who are stuck here in Tijuana in MPP and who have lost their employment because many factories and other you know, informal type jobs have closed down and they're struggling with paying for food and medication. Um, so you can help us meet those basic needs that the government is not meeting by contributing to our COVID-19 migrant humanitarian fund. And then just finally, I wanna give a plug for our deportee program. Uh, we have a deportee program in Tijuana. We are working with a lot of people who are former California residents who had legal permanent residence before, um, as well as people who have parents that are US citizens or grandparents that are US citizens that may be US citizens themselves and they don't even realize it. Um, or people who were deported subsequent to a criminal conviction that maybe no longer would get them deported and could potentially come back to the US. Um, that program's always in need of funding and, and people think about family separation and they think about you know us stealing babies and locking babies in cages and sending the parents back to Central America. But we've been doing family separation for decades um, at a really horrific rate. Um, and every time we deport a parent of a child, whether that child is an immigrant child living in the US or that child is a US citizen child, we're destroying a family, um, and which may potentially never be put back together. And so we really encourage people to, to plug into our deportee program as well. You have such wonderful programs. And some of the people that you have working with you, um, I've worked with either directly or as partners in the past. We have we have done work with, uh, or I've done work with Caresa and, and ACLU, and of course Casa del Migrante. Casa del Migrante, um, and and I kind of started around the same time, and uh, 1986 in the mid 80s. And I know that uh, now with Father Murphy there and Gabriela and that wonderful staff that they have. The migrants that are there, the, the males that are there, because as you know, Mother Asunta next door there with the women and children, it's a whole different um, profile than it, they were back then, you know, the, the people that are there. And, and one of the things that I wanted to get the latest update that you would know is not too long ago, I saw uh, Trump mentioning something about, oh, why, wouldn't we, why would we return the, these people, in, you know, using his language, which I won't repeat. Well, why, why would we return these people to Mexico when they're from other countries? You know, we'll send them directly back to, to, the, 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 to their countries, which I know is not the case in many cases. What's the status of that now? If I'm a person that's being returned to Guatemala, specifically Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador, those three countries, are they being returned directly to that country? Or are they still because of the, uh, you know, they're being deported. Are they being returned through Mexico? I know that you're not supposed to do that, but things have changed. What's the status now when they're being returned? I believe Mexico indicated that they would take back Central Americans that had previously, you know, would previously otherwise be sent back under MPP. Um, however, you know, we don't know because a lot of the shelters are under quarantine, so they're not accepting new people. Um, so we don't know where these people are going, if they're being sent back to Mexico or if they're being sent back to uh, Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador. We just, we have no idea. Yes, there's no idea about uh, a lot of the things that are happening with this administration. But one thing that we do know is that there are people like you, Nicole Ramos, that are dedicated to doing, uh, doing things because you want to promote and live justice, treating these people in a just way with respect, trying to help them as much as possible. 
you know the realities on the border. Nobody knows exactly what these individuals live through, but you have a better idea than most, having talked to so many of these people. And that's one of the things I remember when I was in Montgomery, and, uh, and I'm, I don't know if you know them, but talking to Heidi Byrich, who's actually originally from San Diego, and Mark Potok, two of the principals at Southern Poverty Law Center, when we were talking about these hate crimes, because that's the thing that I'm very active in working against these hate crimes, um, you know, they were sharing stories too, both of them being white, but they were saying, yeah, we know how this works against people of color, whether it's African-Americans or Latinos, and there's hate crimes against everybody. It's not just people of color, but, but having that empathy is so important and so desperate. And uh, with all of the inhumanity that's going on today, uh, your work, Nicole, is more appreciated than ever because you are not only a magnificent mujer, I consider you a good friend and uh, a true light in this world. And one thing that you said at the very beginning that was recently validated, and I've known it all my life, of course, is that women really can rule the world. And there was recently a, a study that was talking about some of the countries that are doing the best job against the virus, and they're ruled by women. It's not, it's not by chance. It's, uh, it's incredible you know, that these, some of these countries where the leader of the country, whether it's uh, you know, Germany or, 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 or some of these other countries, they're ruled by women, uh, New Zealand, and the way that they've responded to it is it was with much more compassion, and they've had much better results. And I think that uh, women should have the uh, we should we should have we as as a as a world should have more women in these positions. And unfortunately, a lot of times they're not given given the uh, the opportunity. And uh, you're a testament to that. And here you have al otro lado, and it's ruled by by women. You know the three of you. So, so congratulations for all your work, and we really appreciate uh, you and, and the work of Al Otro Lava. You're, you're, true, you're true heroes, and you're definitely, all three of you are magnificent mujeres. So I really appreciate that. And we're gonna be now talking in a, in a, in a little bit in Spanish, because I know you're fluent in Spanish, to address a few other issues. But I wanted to thank you very much for joining us on Magnificent Mujer. Any final comments that you would like to share to the audience? Well, apart from just wishing everyone a safe next few months while we struggle through the pandemic, I just want to remind folks as much as we don't want to be at home um, or this is a difficult time for us and our families, uh, we need to remember that the time is even more difficult for people who are being forced to migrate because being home is no longer an option um, and that home is a place where they're going to die if they stay. Um, and so I would just encourage folks to think about ways that they can participate in protecting those people's freedoms, their rights, their lives, um, and Sometimes that may be a monetary donation. I know there's other organizations in the country that are organizing letter campaigns for detained immigrants. Um, so that's just making a human connection. So I just encourage everyone to think about ways that they can contribute to protecting human rights during this pandemic, which studies show, you know, it's during these times of war and pandemic um, and uncertainty where governments seek to violate rights in massive ways and so we have to be extra vigilant during this time to make sure that those most in need of protection have you know all of our eyes on them yes that very well said and, and one question i've asked uh, the guests that uh, i'm going to close with asking you is uh to nicole ramos what is love mm. <laughs> I think love is sacrifice and selflessness. Um, and you can love a person, you can love a cause, you can love an ideal such as justice more than you can love your own sense of comfort and well-being. Um, and so for me, that's, that's how I express my love um, for people um, and for justice is by continuing to get up every day, even though maybe I don't want to get up um, and work as hard as I can um, and use the talents that I have um, to help make the world a more just and fair place for other people. 
Well, well said. And, and you're definitely a good example of the fact that love is an action and, and not just the word. Well, uh, Nicole, on behalf of our producer, Sarah Bella, myself, Enrique Morones, uh, we want to thank you for the tremendous work that you're doing. We will be back momentarily in Spanish. And people can hear these podcasts uh, on Spotify, Apple. Um, we, could have, we have it on Stitcher. We have it on MagnificentMujer.org, BuenHombres.org. And you could tune in to listen to these Buen Hombres and Magnificent Mujer stories, which are very inspiring. So we're going to be returning in Spanish and uh, have a, a, a short segment with Nicole Ramos, Esquire, the attorney, you know, very well-known attorney in this area who does great work. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Nicole, muchísimas gracias. Ahorita vamos a regresar a platicar un poquito en español para que la comunidad migrante, que no, no solo habla español, hay de, de migrantes de todo el mundo, pero que puedan escuchar un poco de, del trabajo que, hace, que haces y qué deben estar haciendo ahorita ellos. Como alguien toca en la puerta, dice que es un policía, etcétera, etcétera. ¿Qué sugerencias tengas? Muchísimas gracias y ahorita regresamos con Buen Hombre, Magnificent Mujer. Hola, ¿qué tal? Soy Enrique Morones de Gente Unida y seguimos hablando con una querida amiga en nuestro podcast que se llama Buen Hombre, Magnificent Mujer. Mujeres que son magníficas, que sabemos que hay mujeres magníficas por todo el mundo. Recientemente tuvimos una de ellas, que estuvimos platicando con ella, ella es una directora de cine y es artista. Ella se llama Josefina López, hablamos con ella hace unas semanas. Y hoy estamos hablando con una que vive en Tijuana, no es originalmente de Tijuana, pero es muy querida. No solamente en Tijuana, pero en San Diego y por todos lados, en muchos países, porque su labor ha tocado la vida de muchas personas por todo el mundo. Y gracias a ellas, algunas personas tienen una mejor vida. Todos han tenido la oportunidad de, de, de querer tener una mejor vida, pero muchas veces no se puede. Pero una persona que, que está ayudando en esto es una abogada que es originalmente del Este, me parece que es de Nueva York. Este, y pues, por los últimos años ha vivido en Tijuana. Es una, una abogada que trabaja por una organización que se llama Al Otro Lado y ella se llama Nicole Ramos. Nicole, ¿qué tal? ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien. ¿Cómo estás, Enrique? Muy bien, Nicole. Pues sabemos que ahorita estás más ocupada que posiblemente cualquier otro tiempo de tu vida. Este, felicidades por el gran labor que estás haciendo. Este, primeramente, este, al otro lado, ¿qué, ¿qué es lo que hace al otro lado? Básicamente, en general, ¿qué es lo que hace? ¿Son abogados ustedes o, o qué es lo que hacen? Al otro lado es una organización binacional. Tenemos oficinas. Los Ángeles, San Diego y Tijuana, México. Y trabajamos con solicitantes de asilo, migrantes, deportados en Tijuana y personas que son indocumentadas en el sur de California. Y estas personas, este, ¿cómo es que se pueden poner en contacto con ustedes? Por ejemplo, si yo soy una persona, mi familia es de México, por ejemplo, y si alguien de mi familia... Estaba pensando este, conseguir una visa o, 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 y no pudo. Y está desesperada y está pensando de, de cruzar ilegalmente porque van a brincarse el muro o algo. Eso es algo que, que deben de platicar con ustedes. Yo, yo sé que hay muchas organizaciones. Yo siempre les he dicho, no hagan eso, es muy peligroso. Y es, es algo que puede este, causarles más daño de lo que estaban esperando. Este, ¿Qué es lo que le dices? ¿Qué es lo que le dices cuando alguien te encuentra en la calle, como pasa conmigo a veces? Estoy pensando brincar el muro porque mi familia vive allá, estuve deportado, no hay trabajo aquí, soy una víctima de violencia. Esas son diferentes situaciones. ¿Qué es lo que le dices a la persona? Pues tenemos un programa de orientación legal para personas que tienen un miedo de estar en su país de origen, solicitantes de asilo. Y ahora, porque estamos en el medio de una pandemia, estamos dando servicio y consultas legales de remoto por teléfono. Pero sí, también hay personas que no tienen un miedo de estar en México, 
pero fueron deportados y sus familias viven en el otro lado y obviamente quieren estar con sus familias y sus comunidades. También tenemos un programa donde brindamos orientación legal a los deportados y si hay una manera en que ellos pueden regresar a los Estados Unidos legalmente, nosotros identificamos esa manera y tratamos de conseguir abogados pro bonos que están dispuestos para llevar el caso. Claro, a veces no es posible, pero sí intentamos. Y pro bono, ¿qué quiere decir sin costo para la, la persona? Este, lo, en los últimos años hemos visto que los migrantes que están tratando de cruzar al otro lado, este, e, ellos son un grupo diferente de lo que eran antes. Antes me acuerdo que veías personas que estaban cruzando, bri, cruzando por, brincándose el muro o, o tratando de nadar, etcétera, etcétera. Algo muy, muy peligroso. Y la mayoría de ellos eran hombres, eran mexicanos y estaban tratando de no encontrarse con la patrulla fronteriza. Y todavía hay, hay algo de eso. Pero ahora, los últimos años, hemos visto algo diferente. Que son, este, lo, la, el grupo que viene más grande ha cambiado históricamente siempre, como siempre cambia ese grupo por todo el mundo. En otras palabras, los que venían más aquí a Estados Unidos en un, en un tiempo, a lo mejor eran los chinos, o a lo mejor eran los italianos, o los alemanes. Recientemente eran los mexicanos y luego fueron los centroamericanos, etc. Y últimamente hemos visto que muchos de los migrantes que se han brincado el muro, que no recomendamos, buscan a la patrulla fronteriza para entregarse y pedir asilo. ¿Qué tipo de mensaje este, le das a, a la persona que está escuchando que está pensando de hacer eso. ¿Qué son las consecuencias? Yo, vamos a suponer, yo estuve deportado, pero mi familia sigue al otro lado y yo veo que no me van a poder dar visa. Yo, yo ya hablé con abogados. Me voy a brincar, yo me voy a brincar. ¿Qué puede, qué puede pasarle a esa persona de, de este, si brinca el muro y, y lo agarran las autoridades? Aparte de, de lo que pudiera pasar, que le ha pasado a miles, que es, es morir. ¿Qué puede pasarle a esa persona si lo, lo agarran la, las autoridades? Pues las consecuencias son diferentes, depende de la persona y su situación. Si es una persona que ha sido deportado y está tratando de reentrar los Estados Unidos, hay consecuencias criminales. Es más probable que ellos van a enfrentar cargos en el sistema federal para reentrar ilegal y puede, puede estar en prisión o en la cárcel para meses y en algunos casos por años. Si es una persona que está tratando de pedir asilo um, o si es una persona que es deportado, es nuestra recomendación que hoy no es el momento de cruzar al otro lado ilegalmente porque en este momento hay un programa de expulsión rápida en que los agentes fronterizos no están dando ningún proceso a los migrantes que cruzan. Están mandando los migrantes a sus países de origen. Entonces, en los casos de solicitantes de asilo, es muy peligroso para tratar de cruzar ahorita porque hay mucho riesgo que va a estar deportado a su país de origen. También no sabemos qué está pasando con COVID-19 en los centros de atención. Estamos escuchando llamadas de personas que son detenidas en los centros y están diciendo que no tienen acceso adecuado a jabón ni a agua ni a otro equipo para proteger su salud. Entonces, es muy peligroso de, para estar detenido durante esa pandemia. Sí, es muy, muy peligroso. Este, todo de, de lo que acabas de, de mencionar es muy peligroso. ¿Y qué tal la persona que quiere pedir asilo? Que, que tiene, porque lo que, una de las cosas, yo no soy abogado, como sabes. Tú sí eres abogada. Entonces, ¿qué pasa cuando la persona, porque te, aunque les digo que no soy abogado, todavía muchas veces te quieren contar su historia, aunque saben que yo no soy abogado. ¿Qué tal cuando te dicen ellos, pero esta es mi historia? 
Y la historia sí te rompe el corazón. Y tú dices, tú estás pensando, esta persona debe de poder entrar este, al otro lado. Sea en el caso, en este caso, a Estados Unidos, porque esto pasa por todo el mundo. Este, pero qué tal este, que la, la persona tiene un caso de asilo y sabemos que antes había una lista. La persona se reportaba a la, a la puerta de entrada, vamos a decir, a, a San Diego. Y van a San Isidro y, 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 este, y, y dicen, yo quiero estar en esa lista. Pues esa lista era muy, muy larga. Y las personas no sabían si les iban a hablar y si les hablaban, si de veras los iban a escuchar. ¿Qué pasa ahorita? ¿Qué pasa ahorita? Esa persona que piensa que tiene un caso de asilo, que, que ellos dicen, aquí tengo los, los papeles necesarios, ¿qué es lo que deben de hacer? ¿Qué es lo que recomiendas? Pues en este momento los Estados Unidos no están aceptando personas que quieren pedir asilo. Normalmente hay una lista en el puerto de entrada que los oficiales de migración mexicana um, están, están monitoreando, están manejando la lista, pero en este momento no hay una lista, no hay un libreto en donde la gente puede poner su nombre para apuntar su nombre en la lista. Pero tenemos la expectativa que en un mes, tal vez dos meses, van a regresar al puerto de entrada, a la Plaza Chaparral, Migración Mexicana, y van a reabrir la lista. Si una persona quiere pedir asilo, asilo necesita poner su nombre en la lista de espera, que es muy problemático. De hecho, nuestra organización tenemos una demanda contra el gobierno de los Estados Unidos por uh, esta lista, pero ahora es, pues tenemos que poner sus nombres en, en la lista, pero uh, la lista puede tardar alrededor nueve meses hasta el momento que la persona puede describir su situación en persona a un oficial de los Estados Unidos. Entonces es un proceso muy, muy largo y no hay garantías que todo va a pasar bien, pero es la única manera que tenemos en este momento. Y la persona que, que este, quiere pedir asilo, ¿qué es lo que califica para pedir asilo? Porque creo que mucha gente piensa que hay ciertas cosas que califican para asilo. Y hay, yo sé que es muy larga la lista, pero en general, ¿quién es la persona que, que califica para asilo? Para calificar para asilo, tiene que tener un temor de persecución por su raza, su nacionalidad, su unión política, su religión, o porque usted pertenece a un grupo en la sociedad que es menos, pues, menos favorido que los otros, que van a enfrentar más persecución. Ejemplos de esos grupos pueden ser miembros de la comunidad LGBTQ, personas que han, um, que han um, pusieron denuncias contra el gobierno con pues, un crimen organizado y testificaron ante la corte. Um, son dos ejemplos de grupos. Y no pueden reubicar en su país de origen um, con seguridad y también si regresan a los Estados Unidos, hay una probabilidad que esta persona van a ser, van a enfrentar alguna persecución por este grupo que el gobierno, si no es el gobierno, el gobierno no puede controlar o no quiere controlar. Y si la persona, por ejemplo, si se queda en su país, está a riesgo de que lo maten o maten a un familiar. Este, por diferentes razones. Sabemos que hay crimen organizado, pandillas, etcétera, y están tratando de huir de esas personas porque si se quedan en su país pueden morir, pueden morir. ¿Qué tal si quieres pedir asilo en México? No eres mexicano, eres este, de otro país. O, este, eso es una. La otra es, si sí eres mexicano, pero quieres... No, no, pues no, no sé cómo funciona la situación. Si tú eres de Guerrero y quieres este, pues, quedarte en México para tener un tipo de protección, son dos grupos muy diferentes. La persona que quiere pedir asilo en México, ahora porque originalmente a lo mejor quería ir a otro país, 
o siempre prefería, porque hay casos así, gente que sí quiere pedir asilo en México, mismo idioma, costumbres más similares. Ellos, ¿cómo pueden este, pedir asilo en, en México? Sí, es posible pedir asilo en México por la agencia de Comar, pero es muy difícil porque el proceso es muy largo. Eh, Comar no tiene suficientes recursos ni empleados para revisar y hacer decisiones en todas las solicitudes de asilo que tienen. Otro problema es que no hay un derecho de tener un traductor durante el proceso de pedir asilo en México. Entonces, personas que hablan creol o portugués o árabe no tienen el derecho de tener un, un traductor. Entonces, no pueden llenar la solicitud ni responder a las preguntas durante la entrevista. La cosa buena sobre solicitando asilo en México es que las, la, las categorías en donde gente puede caber son más amplias porque México ha firmado la proclamación de Cartagena que dice que personas que están huyendo niveles muy altos de violencia en general en la sociedad o otros fallos de las fallas del estado, por ejemplo, pobreza, personas que no pueden conseguir trabajo, no hay, ellos pueden calificar para un estatus de refugio en México, que es diferente de los Estados Unidos porque las categorías son muy limitadas. Si la persona que es de Guerrero, que es desplazado por la violencia de los carteles, pues yo no sé, pero yo no soy abogada mexicana si hay programas para personas que son des, desplazados por la violencia. Pero yo puedo decir que es difícil para personas de México de ganar un caso de asilo porque tienen un gran obstáculo en el requisito que, que tienen que comprobar que no pueden mudar a otra parte del país y estar seguro. Porque México es un país muy, muy grande y el pensamiento de los jueces y los fiscales en los Estados Unidos es, pues, si no puede vivir en Guerrero, pues, puede mudar a Ciudad de México, Tijuana o Juárez. Um, y es una cosa que solicitantes de Ciudad de México tienen que pensar muy bien. Y también la persona, sea de donde sea, tiene que saber que recibir, actualmente recibir asilo en Estados Unidos este, o en México, como acabas de explicar, es muy difícil y casi nadie consigue asilo. Mucha gente piensa que porque tiene la cita, por ejemplo, en Estados Unidos, es probable que lo va a recibir el asilo. Y se confunde la gente que todavía está en México porque saben que están al otro lado y tienen la cita pero no saben que la gran mayoría de esa gente no va a recibir asilo y van a estar regresados a su país de origen. Y eso es algo que también muchas veces me preguntan a mí sobre conseguir documentos para... No tiene que ser asilo, es porque quieren vivir en Estados Unidos porque ahí vivieron la gran mayoría de su, su vida, nunca cometieron ningún crimen, con la, como la gran mayoría de migrantes no cometen crimen. Entonces ellos piensan que van a poder, o su esposa está allá y su familia, y no saben que la mayoría también no va a conseguir documentos para poder entrar al país. Es muy triste, pero es la, la realidad. Entonces, si yo estoy en esa situación, y, y, pero no soy de, de Tijuana, pero quiero estar en Tijuana por diferentes razones, a lo mejor para ponerme en la línea de asilo cuando empiezan a tomar nombres, o porque tengo un caso pendiente y estoy esperando, ¿Qué tan seguros y qué tan difícil, tú trabajaste en uno, es poder que, este, quedarte en un albergue? Los albergues que están en Tijuana, hay espacio, yo sé que tienen necesidades todos, pero ¿hay espacio para el migrante que quiere quedarse en un albergue? Los albergues aquí no están aceptando más gente en este momento por el coronavirus. Entonces todos están bajo cuarentena y va a ser muy difícil para entrar a un albergue si todo, no está quedando allá. 
Entonces, las opciones son muy limitadas. Muy limitadas y está muy difícil la situación porque sabemos que no nomás el virus, pero también hay la situación de seguridad. Entonces, es importante poder confiar en diferentes organizaciones este, o personas de confianza. Este, la persona que se quiere poner en contacto con el otro lado, porque escucharon algunas de las cosas que estás mencionando, Nicole, ¿cómo lo hacen? Porque muchas personas no tienen computadoras. ¿Hay algún teléfono a donde puedan hablar? Y luego hay gente que sí tiene computadoras. Entonces, ¿cuál es el mejor modo de poder ponerse en contacto con el otro lado? Porque posiblemente no es que necesitan ayuda. A veces es porque quieren apoyar. Este, entonces, ¿cómo se pueden poner en contacto con, con ustedes? Si la persona es un solicitante de asilo, debe marcar 664-194-6209. Y si la persona no es solicitante de asilo, es deportado o quiere apoyar nuestros programas, en México puede marcar 664-208. 89-94 y en los Estados Unidos puede marcar 619-78-64-86-6. También uh, tenemos páginas de Facebook, Twitter y Instagram. Para que los que tengan el acceso a ese, ese tipo de, de sistema. Pues Nicole, este... Con el dinero y los donativos que, 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 que donan es para continuar a apoyar los programas que tiene al otro lado. Sé que tienen varios programas. Hacen Eres magnífica mujer y hace magnífica labor. Este, para cerrar, ¿alguna otra cosa que nos quieres mencionar a las personas que están escuchando? No nomás al sur de la frontera, pero también la gente está escuchando al norte de la frontera que hablan español. ¿Hay algún mensaje que quieres decirles sobre esperanza, sobre de tener esperanza? De, 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 ¿Algún mensaje? ¿Algún mensaje que les quieres dar? Pues no sé si es un mensaje de esperanza, pero quiero recordar a la gente que siempre tiene el derecho a permanecer en silencio y no tiene que discutir sobre su estatus migratorio con la policía o agentes de inmigración, tiene el derecho de permanecer en silencio. Y también tiene el derecho de no, abra la, no abrir la puerta. Simplemente porque un oficial aparece a la puerta y dice que yo, yo soy de ICE, yo soy de inmigración, no significa que tiene que abrir la puerta. Ellos tienen que tener una orden de capturar. capturar. Y tiene que ser firmado por un juez, un judicial, no solo de un agente oficial de ICE. Tiene que ser firmado por un juez. Y si, la, y si están tocando en la puerta a las 3 de la mañana, tocando muy fuerte, y dicen que son la policía, ¿tienes que abrir la puerta? Solo tiene que abrir la puerta si tienen un warrant firmado por un juez. Entonces, pídele al oficial que le muestre la orden y que se la pase por debajo de la puerta para que usted pueda revisar si es una orden, una orden o no. Busque su nombre, su dirección y una firma de un juez. Y si las tres cosas no están en, en, en la hoja, no tienen que abrir la puerta. Y, ¿Y lo mismo aplica si estoy caminando por la calle y me paran? ¿Tengo que identificarme y, y, o, o puedo más quedarme en silencio? Tiene el derecho siempre de quedar en silencio. Esto es en Estados Unidos. Entonces, puedes que alguien llega. En los yo estoy caminando por la calle, llega, alguien dice: Para, ¿quién eres? Este, y, y, y digo. Porque es, es muy difícil. Yo, yo que nací, yo gracias a Dios y soy muy orgulloso de ser mexicano. Pero yo nací en San Diego. Hasta yo tuviera un poco de miedo. Si un policía me para cuando yo estoy caminando por la calle y me dice, para, identifícate. 
yo soy, yo soy, yo tengo la doble nacionalidad. Entonces, yo sé que no me pueden deportar porque ¿a dónde me van a deportar? Pero, ¿qué es lo que, cómo, cómo, si no tuviera papeles? Este, ¿me puedo nomás quedar en silencio? Pues debe decir su nombre, pero no tiene que responder a preguntas sobre su estatus migratorio. Ajá, y puede Porque si ellos quieren deportar un migrante, ellos tienen que comprobar dónde esta persona nació. Entonces, si dice, pues mi nombre es uh, María José y soy de El Salvador y pues no tengo papeles, está haciendo el trabajo del gobierno para deportarle. Entonces, mejor no haga el trabajo del gobierno. Posiblemente decir que quieres hablar con un abogado o, o su consulado, sea de donde sea. Pues Nicole, este, sé que estás muy ocupada, estamos muy agradecidos al gran labor que haces tú que hace al otro lado las otras compañeras y, y las muchas personas que trabajan con ustedes. Este, por eso agradezco mucho este, el labor que haces. Y como le he preguntado a varias de las personas que han estado con nosotros, es una pregunta este, que para mí es importante. Para, para Nicole Ramos, ¿qué es amor? Porque pues, el amor es la clave para muchas cosas. Entonces, para Nicole Ramos, ¿Qué es amor? Para mí el amor es sacrificar, pues es luchar por la justicia para personas que tal vez no pueden defender sus mismos. Entonces, en algunos días cuando yo no quiero levantarme, es ese amor para personas um, que están luchando por sus vidas en migración forzada que me inspira de seguir, aunque yo no quiero seguir, es el amor de, de gente que también está luchando. Y, y tú, Nicole Ramos, es un, eres un buen ejemplo de que el amor es una acción y no nomás una palabra. Entonces, te agradezco mucho que hayas estado con nosotros este día por parte de, de, de Sara Bella, de, de la productora Enrique Morones, su servidor. Muchísimas gracias y agradecemos todo lo que continúas a hacer para la comunidad. Eres un, este, una magnífica mujer y agradecemos este, el labor del otro lado. Que Dios te bendiga, te quiero mucho y deseo que tengamos mejores tiempos en el futuro porque todos estamos sufriendo con el virus, tenemos que cuidar todos. Muchos estamos sufriendo con las injusticias de las políticas de los diferentes países, no nomás de Estados Unidos, y todos queremos una mejor vida para nuestras familias. Eso es universal. Y gracias a Nicole Ramos, muchos sí tienen una mejor vida. Por eso, Nicole, muchas gracias por, este, por todo lo que estás haciendo. Este, puedes escuchar este, pod, este podcast que tenemos en Apple, en Spotify, en TuneIn, en buenhombre.org o magnificentmujer.org para escuchar más de estas historias de buen hombres y mujeres magníficas. Nicole, muchas gracias. Gracias a ustedes. El amor es una acción, no nomás una palabra. No se les olvide que el amor no tiene fronteras. Muchas gracias.